Welcome to Going Public, a podcast dedicated to exploring public scholarship and publicly engaged teaching in the humanities. My name is Annie Dwyer, and at the time of this recording, I am the Assistant Program Director of a Mellon Initiative at the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities. The initiative's name is Reimagining the Humanities PhD and Reaching New Publics, Catalyzing Collaboration. Since 2015, two successive Mellon initiatives by this name have supported public scholars at the University of Washington, both faculty developing new graduate seminars in the humanities with public-facing components and doctoral students pursuing public projects in the humanities. The episodes of Going Public consist of interviews with Mellon-supported public scholars after they have launched their projects or taught their public-facing seminars. Please do check out our companion website, which includes faculty fellow syllabi, as well as doctoral student fellow project overviews, artifacts, and other ephemera. The podcast, along with the website, is intended to serve as a resource for scholars interested in developing similar projects and seminars. You can find the Going Public website at www.simpsoncenter.org slash going public. You can also find the link in the description of today's episode. Today's episode now that I've had three sips of a beer, is an interview with Stephen Groening. Steve is an associate professor of cinema and media studies at the University of Washington. And in the summer of 2017, Steve received a Mellon Summer Fellowship for new graduate seminars in the humanities. Over the course of that summer, he developed the course Public Spheres, Public Media, which he taught in the spring of 2018. And our conversation explores, among other things, the utility of theoretically grounding publicly engaged work, the necessary transformation of doctoral training requirements, and the importance of informal spaces of exchange, both in the cultivation of new publics and the training of publicly engaged scholars. So thank you so much, Steve, for joining me. Thank you, Annie. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, just to begin, I, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about the concept of the course. What were some of the major learning objectives or central questions? So there were two main objectives. One is that I wanted to give a kind of intellectual history of the idea of the public. Right? And that, that sort of turned out to be, um, for me, after teaching the seminar, the, the thing that was of primary importance um, and, and something that has informed my scholarship and work later on. The, the second objective for the course was to think about how different media forms produce different publics. And so I had, a, you know, it was like a section on letters, a section on television, a section on cinema. Um, and I think I had a, oh, and I had a couple of weeks on the internet as well. Um, and so thinking about what, um, you know, the cinema public is and how that's different than the internet public versus um, a letter writing public. So those, that was really the two main branches of, of the course. Uh, and in terms of just the assignments and the scaffolding of the course, what did the, what did the kind of arc of the, of the syllabus look like? So I really started out more with the intellectual history and um, I would, because of my own training in um, European critical theory, I started out actually with enlightenment thinking and assigned um, Kant's essay, what is enlightenment and the idea of, you know, the private individual and private thought being crucial to the, the formation of bourgeois consciousness and the enlightenment. And so right away, sort of juxtaposing public and private 
from an early time period. And then leading into uh, Jürgen Habermas's um, structural transformation of the bourgeois public sphere, and then um, various responses to Habermas. So the first part of the course was really that intellectual history. And then the second half was case studies. So using that intellectual history to look at different media forms. And so that was really, you know, how I built it up and reading the original texts, not, not in German, translated in English, <laughs> um, was really important to me to have um, students not just sort of get the Reader's Digest version of Habermas, but also to approach it um, with an open mind and uh, critical thinking. And, and that was one of the things I noticed about the materials that you added to our archive is the, the way in which you allowed students to kind of do deep meditation on particular quotes um, and, and, really, and, and really do their own reading of Habermas and other, other thinkers. That was an assignment I, I borrowed from an, a seminar I took as a graduate student where I would take a particular sentence or a couple of sentences from this really rich text and isolate them. And I would say, okay, you know, think more about this in this um, low pressure way, right? Like what would the notes in the margin be when you write, when you read this sentence, right? Because we all do that. We're reading the book and we're like, oh my God, the sentence, it's like all here. And you, you might highlight it or put a post-it next to it or a star or whatever, and then move on. And I hardly ever take the time to like fully write out my response to that like star moment in the text. And so that's what I was trying to give the students the opportunity to do. Yeah, I love that because it's so exploratory and it's just a wonderful way of working through through theoretical difficulty too. Yeah, thank you. And then also, I, I think I just love the interpretation that you had of the kind of general assignment of the of the Mellon Initiative for faculty who receive this fellowship, which is to develop a public facing, publicly engaged graduate seminar. And you took that in the direction of I'm going to give graduate students this sort of robust opportunity to construct a genealogy of the concept of the of the public sphere and really interrogate the concept of the public sphere. I'm wondering, you know, how do you think that kind of theoretical basis or grounding might help students who later go on to pursue publicly engaged scholarship or teaching down the line? So I would hope that the students from that uh, seminar, when they're entering into those projects, are better able to articulate why the public is important and why facing scholarship is important. Maybe deeper values about um, democracy and knowledge and um, human dignity. And that's why the public is important because it's, it's, it's humanistic. Public humanities is almost redundant in that way um, when you think about it from, from that aspect. And to give the students the, the vocabulary to, to talk through those issues, um, not just with other academics, but of course, also with the various communities um, and publics that they're engaged with. So, so useful. And the other thing that I loved about your construction of the course is the way in which you built in this kind of open-ended pro-seminar time. Can you, can you say a little bit more about that? This was also based on an experience I had as a graduate student, and um, I took this uh, seminar where after it was a Friday seminar, and after every seminar, we would walk um, a couple of blocks to this hotel bar, and we would sit around and have one drink and talk about like academia, talk about the world of academia, and get like a lot of professionalization advice. And so 
I wanted to build that in. And so what I did is I said, I'm going to have the last half hour of class reserved for students to present their own work that might not have anything to do with the class that will help them, you know, prepare conference presentations, prepare maybe um, for their general exams. Maybe they can give us like a a bit of another seminar paper that they're working on or something or talk about problems that they're having. And then afterwards, we'd walk into um, the U District and find ourselves a bar and sit down and be casual and talk about all sorts of stuff. Because to me, that's also about public disc. That's building community. That's building uh, solidarity. And for me, learning is always social and education is always about relationships. And so I wanted the students to know and feel like they are also scholars. They are also academics. And, you know, institutionally, they may be like junior academics or future academics or or these sorts of things. But at the same time, you know, they have a, a... seat at the table. What I love about that is just the the kind of informal space and and kind of building or creating an opportunity to have those kinds of conversations that that only happen in those kinds of spaces, right? And it's it's so rare and so difficult to find. What did students do at that that time? What did they what sorts of things did they bring to the pro seminar space? So the pro seminar space, there were um, two people who presented um, mock uh, conference talks. Some other people brought in um, papers that they were working on and workshopped that. Um, So those were the two primary ones. I thought people would ask questions to me um, or would want a session about how to write a dissertation or how to plan a dissertation or, you know, what to do about general exams or the job market. The pro seminar time, during, so during the official class schedule, those issues never came up. But when we retired to the bar, that's when we would start having those more like, um, you know, shop talk chats. Uh, and, and I think it's partly because, as you said, that that informal setting also made it feel like it's less student-teacher relationship and more like, oh, this person has experience and will can show me the ropes. Uh, and now that I've had three sips of a beer, I can ask Steve these questions that I was yes. asked before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was one of the things that I loved about our summer sessions, too, is it seemed like a rare space where graduate students could talk to faculty who mm-hmm. were not on their committee necessarily mm-hmm. about about things like how do I pursue public scholarship in the context yeah. of a university that yeah. doesn't always value it. Yeah. And yeah. just kind of watching those conversations unfold and that camaraderie emerge was was so gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because I'm going to give a shout out to um, Dr. Regina Lee, who was in that summer session with me. And she is just amazing. I have vivid memories that summer of the graduate students, like walking up to her, seeking her advice. And she was so generous. And I could tell that she was like such a role model for them. And it was so valuable for the Simpson Center to present that opportunity for those graduate students um, and, of course, for Dr. Lee um, to be able to um, have that opportunity to be a mentor to them. This summer seminar that the the Simpson Center um, sponsored and that I was so fortunate to be a part of really informed the way um, and probably inspired me to become the graduate program coordinator here. So now I'm the graduate program coordinator for the Cinema Media Studies graduate programs, which are new. I helped um, 
the rest of the faculty, we basically built them up. We changed a lot of aspects of the PhD study in particular, but also the MA study. Mm-hmm. And I would say that for me, there were two driving um, issues. Well, actually, they're related. So maybe it's just one. Less hazing, I guess, is what I want. Yeah. I want it to be like, there's so much mystification about graduate education, people not telling you what the expectations are, people being very vague about what it takes to succeed. Um, and people sort of hiding things. Um, and so there's a lot of mystification that I was like, I want to break this down. I want less opacity, you know, less opaque. Don't want our program to be one of those where it's like, well, I did this. I read a hundred books in the original French for my exam list. So everybody- and you must suffer as much as I did. Exactly, exactly. I suffered, you must suffer. I'm like, no, I suffered. That means nobody else should, right? If, if nothing else, I should make it so that people, um, you know, enjoy graduate, graduate school and are able to benefit from it at the same time. I was thinking of the concrete example is we changed the way we're doing um, general exams. It used to be you come up with a list of um, works and then you get like that one question, you're locked in the conference room, basically in front of a computer for like eight hours and you're timed and you have to write all these pages. And, uh, you know, when we were trying to figure out, um, you know, what to do, how to change the program, I said, what is the purpose of this? Why do we basically chain people to the desk and make them type? We get often not very good essays out of that. And there's, I can't think of another time in my career as an academic when I had to do that. Right. 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 I mean, it's true that there's sometimes there's quick turnaround for journal articles, um, but, mm-hmm. but it's not like that. It's not the same thing, right? You can't leave the room. You must produce this amount of pages in this many hours. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so we thought, how can we make the exams so that they benefit our students later on in their career? And we basically decided to make them more teaching oriented. Oh, interesting. Your three, yeah. Your three fields are more like, what three survey courses would you teach? Nice. How would you like an intro to poetry class? How would you teach like an intro to the novel class? Um, and then the emphasis was on the oral part of the exam. So you come into the room and, you know, somebody like hands you, um, you know, Jane Eyre and, and says, how would you teach this? Oh, I love that. You know, a hundred student class, you know, what would you do? And, and talk about that. That's so valuable because so many, so many students don't aspire to research jobs, right? They're interested right. in teaching at community colleges or other teaching intensive institutions. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. And and even those of us who are in research jobs, like I am, you know, teaching is easily half, if not three quarters of my time. Exactly. Yeah, everybody does it. And so why not make that a part of of the whole process? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Apropos of teaching, how do you think your teaching shifted or changed while you were teaching your Mellon seminar? Anything really stick out to you as, oh, this is something I want to carry forward? I think for me, that seminar was the first time at UW that I was relaxed as a teacher, that I was in the room and I felt like the students 
respected me and I didn't have to prove myself. And that might have been completely false, but that's how I felt. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, and I just thought this is the attitude I need to keep in all my classes. And I think it's changed the way that I teach that I'm much more relaxed. I'm much less defensive. When students ask me questions and I don't know the answer, I, I don't know. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I wonder if it, it had something to do with just the openness of, for instance, that pro seminar space or even the final projects that you assign students and, and not always necessarily positioning yourself as in that position of mastery. Yeah, I think actually you're right that that detail about the, the final project is something that I've carried forward. The last graduate seminar I taught, it was the prompt was basically the same. It's like, do what is useful for you. What do you want to do and what do you need to do? Does it need to be like a video essay? Does it need to be a book review? Does it need to be a syllabus? Does it need to be a seminar paper that you revise it to a journal article? Um, yeah. And I'm not going to hold you all to have to do the same thing because you're, you know, you're all at different points in your career and your thinking and I don't want to cookie cutter it. And that mm -hmm. sort of way of treating the students with respect and saying, I'm here to help you succeed and I trust you to know what you need. Um, that's an ethic that really did come out of the humanities seminar. So just to back up, you, you kind yeah. of open-ended final project assignment mm -hmm. where you said you can think of this as a final project for a different audience using a different genre. It doesn't necessarily have to be an academic genre. Yeah. So I had a, I had a couple of academic papers. Um, you know, one was about Reddit as a, as a public sphere, as an example of the internet public sphere. I had one that was about, um, I think 1930s cinema. Um, but then I had others, you know, I'd assume from design who wanted to design a new kind of publication process, a new sort of open publishing process. So that project was really hard for me to evaluate because it's it's coming from design thinking, which I'm not really familiar with, and there's lots of diagrams. Uh, so it was different, but I think it really helped him. And I think having that space where um, I was doing all this abstract thinking and conceptual thinking and like this heavy emphasis on, on European theory um, really shaped the, his design stuff, which then he had to help me with. Uh, I had a student, um, a couple of students uh, write syllabus for public facing undergraduate courses, um, which I think, you know, looking back is maybe something I should have emphasized more. I think that's such a great idea because even as the Nolan Initiative has been so focused on graduate education, there's no reason that public scholarship can't be integrated on an undergraduate uh, level. And I think if we're taking the long view and thinking about institutional and disciplinary transformation, uh, it has to include reimaginings of undergraduate work. Right, right, right. I guess, too, I was thinking about, you know, your disciplinary location and the way in which your immersion in uh, media studies might help you think about and um, teach public scholarship in ways that other people might not have available to them. I guess I'm just interested in the question of, you know, the relationship between public scholarship, teaching public scholarship, and disciplinary knowledge location formation. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this question because it makes me go like all the way back in my mind to before I went to graduate school, before I even applied to graduate school, I was um, working as a uh, box office employee at a movie theater and also selling popcorn, right? I, I like a, um, 
an independent movie theater. And one day, one, one night, actually, we were showing a film called a New Zealand film called Once Were Warriors. And after the film, the audience came out and usually people after the film, they come out and they just like walk out the door or whatever. But after this film, people started gathering in groups and they didn't know each other. I could tell they didn't know each other. They were strangers to each other and they introduced each other and they, they wanted to talk about the film. Fascinating. And I, I had worked there for years and I had never seen that before. And that's what sparked my interest. What happened? What is it about these people in this film and this moment that made them basically form a public and say, we are going to be engaged. A powerful anecdote. And it, it just like, that's when I'm like, I need to go to back to graduate school. And so I started thinking about audiences and publics and the theoretical training and, and realizing that there's not one thing that is public. The public means so many things. And we just assume it means one thing. When we talk it, it's like a shorthand for a lot of other things, but also that these different media forms produce different kinds of publics as well. There's something about the, the movie theater and the architecture of the movie theater and going up and the lights coming up and all of that, that creates a certain kind of relationship between film spectators that's different than television. So I didn't realize until you asked that question, but this interest goes back a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love this story, Steve, because it's so Habermasian in a way. And, you know, as you're, as you're reminiscing, the 18th century coffee house gives way to the 21st century movie theater, but you have a similar outcome in effect, right? The formation of a public through critical exchange about a work of art. And I think that story is just such a strong argument for grounding the work of public scholarship as you do in these intellectual genealogies of the public sphere. Uh, you know, just thank you so much for talking to me today, Steve. I've learned so much for, from our conversation. Thank you, Annie. It was a real pleasure. This episode of Going Public was made possible with help from the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities staff, particularly C.R. Grimmer, who is also the communications manager at the Simpson Center, our sound editor, Oliver Gordon, and of course, support from the Mellon Foundation. The Mellon Initiative at the Simpson Center, Reimagining the Humanities PhD and Reaching New Publics, Catalyzing Collaboration, was led by Kathleen Woodward, Director of the Mellon Initiative, Director of the Simpson Center, and UW Professor of English, Rachel Artiaga, Assistant Director of the Simpson Center and Associate Program Director of the Mellon Initiative, and myself, Annie Dwyer, Assistant Program Director of the Mellon Initiative. We hope you check out additional episodes of Going Public on our website at www.simpsoncenter.org slash goingpublic and wherever you get your podcasts.